Hi everyone, and welcome to our latest Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast. I'm Andrew Strange, your regular host, and as usual, we're recording remotely, so please note this might impact the quality of the sound. In today's episode, we're discussing operational resilience, a key pillar of the regulatory regime. I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Stage, who leads PwC's regulatory insight on operational resilience around the globe, and Kalichi Iboko, a director who leads the operational resilience work we deliver to a range of our clients. So, operational resilience has been near the top of regulators and firms' agendas for some years now, and we recently had the final policy statements from the regulator, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later on. But firstly, Adam, do you want to just start by setting the scene for us in terms of what the the wider policy landscape looks like and how we got to where we are today? Uh, Thanks, Andrew. And I think the timing of this podcast has worked really well because the, uh, there's been a lot of activity recently. At the end of March, we saw a flurry of papers come from the UK, um, 12 in total from the FCA, the PRA and the Bank of England, all on operational resilience, as well as a couple more on third party risk management from the PRA. And we also got um, on the 31st of March, a couple of papers from Basel. So the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision published um, their final principles on operational resilience alongside their updated principles on the sound management of operational risk. So, you know, 16 papers in three days at the end of March, all on operational resilience. How did we get here? Well, um, this podcast isn't intended to be a full history lesson, but uh, a quick potted history. So uh, you know, the, the idea of operational resilience as a concept um, was, was created really in 2018 through the UK Joint Authority discussion paper. Um, and since then, we've seen all around the world uh, different standard setters and um, national competent authorities start to develop their own views on operational resilience. And we'll cover some of those today. So for anyone who picked up any of those 12 papers on resilience um, from the UK on the 29th of March, it should all have felt pretty familiar from what you've seen over the last couple of years. The concepts introduced at the start around uh, the idea of important business services. So these are services that are delivered to external end users, to to clients. That's still um, central to this. Uh, the idea of setting standards of resilience, so impact tolerances as they're referred to, um, is also still there. Mapping, scenario testing, so firms' ability to to test whether they can stay within these standards of resilience and to really help prepare for when the inevitable happens. These are all still central to the theme. What we have seen, though, in this latest set of papers is some really helpful clarifications um, from all of the, the, the UK authorities as well as some examples which really bring to life um, what can otherwise feel like um, some quite alien concepts to to, to people when they they engage with it for the first time. Um, So yeah, lots of activity recently and there's still more to come if we start to think about the European agenda as well. Well, I was going to ask about that, Adam, because your your potted history there talks about 12 papers from the UK perspective and some some international bodies. But I mean, is there a European angle to this or is Brexit pretty much made that all irrelevant? No, there there very much is a European angle, but I think it's a slightly different beast. So uh, you're right. I focused on the UK and Basel mainly because of the recent papers. Um, I I might also mention on a tangent the US paper. So at the end of last year, so uh, I think this was the end of um, September or October, 
um, what we saw was uh, a joint paper from the federal agencies, so the Federal Reserve Board, the OCC, and the FDIC over in the US, uh, published a paper on the sound practices of operational resilience. It was focused on banks. In fact, it was focused on the largest and most complex banks, and it was a collection of um, papers, uh, uh, principles, good practice, things that already exist in their eyes. And the reason why I mention that is because the UK, the US and Basel, they're all looking at resilience through this sort of end-to-end -end, uh, lens. In the UK, we talk about important business services, and that has a focus on you know, services that, that go to clients and that could have an impact uh, if disrupted on a firm's safety and soundness or on financial stability or on the clients themselves. In the US and, and Basel, they focus more on safety and soundness and financial stability, but it's it's the same sort of thing. It's critical operations and those things that you, you deliver externally that could have an impact on, on safety and soundness and stability. The European paper, um, and this is for, for anyone who's who's heard the, the familiar term DORA, which um, isn't a name, but is an acronym, the Digital Operational Resilience Act. Um, that is a slightly different beast. I mean, I, I would characterize that as being a, a sort of a natural evolution of the work that, say, the, the European Banking Authority, the EBA, has been doing in recent years on, on outsourcing and ICT guidelines. And of course, the others, so EOPA and ESMA, have also been developing guidelines, but I think a, a, a little bit behind. So I, that's why I refer to the EBA here. So DOR is effectively focusing on, I guess, technology resilience, ICT resilience. It, it talks about technology and it talks about third parties in the main. And aside from those two concepts, it does get into things like testing, but it's a really around sort of penetration testing. So specific asset testing rather than the testing of a service to a client that fails. And what do you do and what are your, what are your sort of plan B and plan C around that? Um, so I would characterize Europe, the Europe papers being much more about advancing and evolving your existing um, risk management and harmonizing that across the 22 odd thousand firms that, that are in scope. Um, whereas the, the UK, the Basel and the US papers for me are much more about this service view and, and a, a more rounded approach, not just looking at technology data and third parties but also looking at people and and the premises you know the footprints that firms use to deliver those services thanks adam and um, putting aside any terrible puns i can put in here about exploring dora i mean you talk about twenty thousand or so or twenty two thousand european firms there well from a, a sort of sector perspective is it all uk firms that need to take account of this is it all sixty thousand fca firms or is it fewer no, it's not. Um, I, I don't think the final policy papers gave an exact number, but the consultation papers were talking around 2,000 firms. So these are primarily um, what we would call dual regulated firms. So those firms that have both PRA and FCA supervision. So you're thinking, you know, credit institutions at banks, building societies, you're thinking um, Solvency II firms. Uh, the FCA then um, also adds to that a, a large number, I think around a thousand um, firms that are subject to the payment services regulations or the e-money regulations. Um, and then it also includes things like uh, enhanced scope senior managers and certification regime firms. So these, these firms could be in any financial service sector. 
um, but they've been deemed under the, the the sort of methodology for determining which SMR and SMCR firm you are. They've been determined as being enhanced. So, you know, talking to firms across the whole industry, there'll be people, uh, there'll be firms touched in every sector. Um, but ultimately, it's 2,000, you know, which is a relatively small number out of the 60 odd thousand um, that the FCA regulates in total. But by definition, the enhanced ones being pretty sizable firms and clearly the more complex ones on the whole. But anyway, that, that's really helpful, Adam. Thank you. Great context. So, Kalechi, can I can I bring you in here? I mean, we've had these final policy statements from the regulators. Well, what's your take on the headline messages from them and what practically do firms need to do to begin to comply? Thank you, Andrew. Um, I'll start with time skills. So there's a 12 month implementation period starting from March 2021 where firms need to have identified the important business services, set impact tolerances, which is effectively how much disruption um, they, they can accept, and identified their vulnerabilities with these important business services. Now, following that, firms will have up to three years, a transitional period, where they will take the steps to address or fix those vulnerabilities they found, um, which would allow them to remain within impact tolerance as soon as it's practicable. But the aim is to be in full compliance by March 2025. So generally, these requirements have always been there um, in terms of the consultation paper. But what's softened slightly with the new policies is the expectation from the regulator in terms of level of sophistication of certain activities like mapping and scenario testing that need to be done to allow you meet these key um, requirements. Now, what does level of sophistication mean? Um, it, it's still subjective, but ultimately it means that there's a little less pressure from firms. It's not heavily prescriptive and, and they're allowed to take a proportionate approach to how they go about this, which is actually do as much work as you need to do to identify what's important, set your standards for them, work out what, what, what's wrong, which will allow you fix it in the future. Um, practically what the firms need to do. I think one of the things I will say is try as much as possible to leverage what you already have. Now, many firms have risk frameworks in place, which, and this is, we're talking with resilience, we're talking about the risk of disruption to your critical services. So your operational risk frameworks should, should be, have things that you can reuse. Um, firms are already doing work around business continuity and crisis management and, and reporting. Now, the extent to which you can take this existing um, capabilities, frameworks, disciplines, and reuse them to make your resilience framework stronger and more effective can only be a plus. And um, the only other thing I'll mention as well that has come through from the more recent regulation from the policy is around the concept of prevention versus response. Now, I think in the past there was a heavy weighting towards the response and recovery side of resilience. So what do you do when things go wrong? Um, now, I, I feel there's a bit more of a, a rebalancing of the focus now where it's just as important to try and prevent incidents or withstand incidents when they do happen as it is to be able to respond and recover from them having gone wrong. Thank you. That, uh, that's really helpful, although really quite complex. So in terms of your experience and what you're seeing with, with our client, how are firms tackling this? And are there any really interesting examples of, of particular challenges you've seen or indeed particularly good practice that you could share with our listeners? Um, what I would say is it takes longer and it's probably more complex and harder than people think it is. So, you know, for firms that have started on this journey already using the guidance from the consultation paper and prior to that discussion paper, they have found that activities like setting tolerances and mapping, it just always takes longer than you plan it to. So what I would say is start early. 
and, and, and look to learn and, and refine and iterate over time. And now the regulator expects that as well. You know, the, the concept of saying you don't have to do it to the nth level of sophistication means that there is an opportunity for firms to try it out, experiment and learn over time. Now, how are firms doing this? Well, one that has come through quite popularly is the concept of doing pilots, which is effectively firms are taking one important business service and following it through the full process from you know, setting the tolerances for them, doing the end-to-end -end mapping, identifying vulnerabilities, doing the testing, and, and therefore setting the plan for how to fix them. And once you, once you do a pilot, you learn how it works, what the challenges are, and you can refine and make it better as you roll out to others. And we found that firms that have taken this approach have found it to be a lot more efficient when rolling out to the other services, and have found um, a step change in terms of the, the rate at which they can make progress. Uh, the other thing I would say is collaboration is really key. Now, the regulators have mentioned that they expect best practice to emerge over time. And I'd say firms shouldn't try to do this in silos. This is not one where you, you, can, you have all the knowledge internally to get, get it right yourselves, right? There has to be a, th a thing about speaking to your colleagues, speaking to your peers and understanding what they're doing, what's worked for others, what's not, how people define their business services, how, much, how granular are they going, how granular are they not going, how does your impact tolerance compare to the others? You know, am I going for a day when my peers are going for four days? And, and that, that effectively would mean that the, in, the industry starts collectively to move towards a norm, but there is lots of learning to happen there. Now, there well, you know, and we are seeing this happen in, in a number of ways. So some resources are available out there. There's the Operational Resilience Collaboration Group, which is a cross-sector cross um, full industry group where organizations and FS firms have come together to say, Let, let's collaborate on this. There's a LinkedIn group out there um, worth looking out for them because there is a wealth of knowledge coming out of that. Um, and actually specific sectors are doing things for themselves via the associations. For example, the Investment Association has started to pilot work um, around um, impact tolerances and impact business services for wealth managers. Um, similarly, we have the Beyond Societies Association, where Beyond Societies are collaborating to get to a common view of what, what's important for them and some of the standards that they should be setting. Uh, more locally, what's interesting, I found some local groups or hubs emerging based on size and geography. So a number of my Beyond Society clients across the north have started to come together to share insights and collaborate on, on this topic of operational resilience. So what we're finding is this local hubs where people are working together to try and solve this conundrum together. And I think it's working. Thanks, Kalechi. And it's really interesting to hear about that, that regional hub approach and firms collaborating together. Um, I don't think we see enough of that from firms. So that's, that's really good to, to hear as a, a live example. So Adam, earlier on in the podcast, you, you briefly touched upon the third party risk aspects. And there was a paper published at the same time as the policy statements. I think it was a, a supervisory statement from the PRA. Can you just talk us through the key messages from that, please? Sure, Andrew. And, and I think it's it's easy, perhaps, um, when there are 12 other papers on resilience to forget that there were a couple of key papers on third party. And you're right that it was the PRA that did this. Um, so, so far, we haven't seen anything from the FCA. Um, previously, they've said that they weren't going to be making changes. I think this time they're they're suggesting they're keeping the door open so they're, they're, they're going to carry on working with the PRA and if they feel they need to make updates to um, to their handbook then they will do but at the moment this is just uh, in, in scope for, for PRA firms and really what the PRA have sought to do is to refresh their approach to outsourcing and wider third-party risk management 
it's about embedding the guidelines released by the EBA several years ago um, on outsourcing and also um, on ICT uh, risk management and, and reflecting things like the EOPA cloud um, outsourcing guidelines. But also crucially, it's about linking the concept of how firms manage their uh, arrangements with third parties with their broader operational resilience. So the two go hand in hand. Now, often when people think about third parties, they may think, oh, well, we're just talking about external vendors. So, you know, other firms, other organizations. But of course, the complexity of um, many financial service firms means there are intra-group relationships here. So this might just be a service that you're getting from elsewhere within the group. Um, and that also needs to be um, appropriately risk managed um, uh, and, and thought about. So what are the key messages for the papers? Well, again, per the op resilience papers, uh, we've seen some good clarifications from the PRA uh, responding to, to, to many questions that the firms came back with. I think there's a key change on the timeline. So whereas up till now, firms have been working to the EBA guidelines, uh, which and the final deadline is actually by the end of this year. So by the 31st of December 2021, firms were supposed to have remediated all of their legacy contracts uh, in line with the refreshed EBA outsourcing guidelines. The PRA has, has pushed that back now. So what they've gone back to firms and said um, that by the end of 31st of March 2022, um, any new or amended uh, arrangements that have been put in place uh, need to be under the, um, the, the new expectations via, via the supervisory statement. And then after the 31st of March 2022, any other legacy arrangements that haven't been updated at that point should be addressed um, you know, at the earliest opportunity. So that does give firms some you know, quite important breathing room, I think, there. But as I said, aside from the timeline, I think that the, the other key message really is just how much the um, the third party paper draws in on the operational resilience one. And, and that just by choice of words there, I think is important. So whereas the EBA outsourcing guidelines focuses very much on outsourcing, the PRA recognizes that firms could have non-outsourcing third party arrangements that are material, they're really important to how they deliver important business services under the op resilience regime. And so of course it's it's important that firms apply appropriate risk management to those, even though they are not outsourcing. So it does get firms to think about wider um, third party arrangements and not just outsourcing. Um, I'd say that's a you know a key difference. Yeah, somebody who works in asset management. That 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 outsourcing and reliance on parts of your group and something is is clearly I'm something I'm very familiar with. But what are the major challenges that firms are actually going to face from that, Adam? Um, well, if I think about what we hear firms struggle with at the moment, so there's 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 an oft quoted one around. Uh, contractual terms. So clearly, through these sort of the, the new expectations that um, you know, first of all, the EBA and now the PRA have expanded upon, you know, they require regulated firms to um, to have the right sort of permissions and uh, transparency, visibility in place of what third parties are doing. Uh, and obviously, 
you know, you, you, there's this, there's this um, phrase that you can outsource services, but you can't, can't outsource responsibility. So they have um, some very high expectations of what regulated firms will do in managing third parties. Um, but trying to convince, you know, often quite large firms, quite large third party providers to change common uh, standard contractual terms is not easy. Um, so actually, you, you know, there, there is a challenge to, uh, to, to, to sort of get them on the right level. Now, the, the PRA have acknowledged this in their recent paper, and uh, they've, they've said to firms that, look, if you find that your third parties are unable or unwilling um, to make some of these amendments, then you should notify us at the earliest opportunity. So I think they acknowledge the, the sort of practical constraints that firms face. Maybe another challenge is around the visibility of the whole um, supply chain. So, you know, we're, we're talking about third parties, but in many cases, um, third parties may subcontract out to fourth, fifth parties, et cetera. Um, and whilst firms are not necessarily um, required to monitor fourth parties directly, they are required to uh, ensure that third parties are managing um, the chain appropriately. It's also worth noting that, you know, there could be higher concentration risk if um, if you started to look at some common fourth parties that the firms were using um, so I think visibility of exactly what's going on in the supply chain and ensuring that your, your third parties are managing those subcontractors is another practical challenge thanks Adam so an awful lot of work for firms to be getting on with there I mean, while operational resilience is really important as an area of regulatory focus, I mean, it's clearly only one of the things that's a competing priority for our, our clients at the moment. Certainly, I can think of things like the, the investment firm Prudential regime, um, which must have links into the operational resilience agenda as well. But there must be other things we've talked about today and, today and other initiatives that firms need to think about too. Uh, I guess the old phrase of trying to dig up the road only once makes sense if you're trying to minimise the time and effort you put into dealing with multiple regulatory challenges. Um, Kalechi, can I come to you first? Where are you seeing um, particular links between operational resilience and uh, other regulatory challenges? Thanks, Andrew. I mean, you make a fair point. There is a lot to do. And, and the way to go about it would be to drive, look for ways to be efficient and to leverage and to align. Um, I'll pick up on two specific things that firms need to look out for. One of them is operational risk. Now they have, firms have to manage operational risk. They've got risk frameworks and everything else. So if you think about resilience um, being the way to manage the risk um, to disruption of critical services, then or important business services, being able to reuse existing risk frameworks to inform your operational resilience approach now, that could be things like your risk and control processes, your self-assessments, um, your, your risk matrices, the way you assess impacts to therefore determine what is critical based on the, the impacts if, it, if you lose that service. All of these things are opportunities for you to leverage what you've got in your existing risk framework to inform operational resilience. But I think it also goes both ways. So you, operational resilience provides a real opportunity for firms to refocus the approach to risk management. Now, risk management should focus on your most important or your most critical services, processes, things in general, right? So what, what resilience does is that it, it allows risk professionals to almost add that additional robustness to what they do because there's a, there's a real reason for why it's being done. Um, so yeah, up risk and operational resilience are, are two areas where there's opportunity for alignment. 
We also get a lot of questions from clients about how operational resilience links to operational continuity and resolution, or OCIR. Now, these two have slightly different objectives. One focuses on ensuring that um, normal operations can continue if, if there is a disruption, while the other one is focused on enabling continuity and smooth transition when a firm moves into recovery and resolution. That said, there are significant overlaps um, between the both of them. And, and there's a need for constant narrative across the both of them. Now, if you want to talk to the PRA about OCIR, um, you need to be talking in the same terms as, as, or you need to be talking about the same things or presenting the same view as you have done for resilience. Your important business services should align with your concept of critical functions and critical business lines um, from an OCIR perspective. And it's, it's, there's an opportunity as well to reuse some of the content and some of the work that has been done around mapping what's important, identifying important business services, and, and setting standards um, when you're doing your OCR. So I, I would say, you know, from an efficiency perspective, from an alignment and effectiveness perspective, um, there is a real opportunity to make sure OCIR and OPRES are fully aligned. Yes, I'd agree with that. And certainly I'm seeing a lot more um, cross-referencing almost in certain regulatory initiatives to, to other regulatory initiatives where that consistency is what the regulator is expecting in the way you articulate a report on certain topics. Adam, uh, in terms of other regulatory initiatives that you've seen, are there any other links that you'd like to put to draw out? I think Kalechi's um, covered the two main ones, but perhaps the, the other aspects I might call out is um, around vulnerable customers and harm. Um, so it's, it's one of the questions we get asked a lot uh, by clients, which is kind of how do we define intolerable harm? And it comes in when firms are trying to set their impact tolerances. Um, so as Kalechi said earlier, this is around you know the maximum level of disruption. Uh, that can be tolerated through the eyes of the client, through the eyes of your firm and, and through the markets that you serve. But trying to work out, um, you know, the, the red line, where does something go from being, I guess, by, by definition, tolerable harm into intolerable harm is really difficult. Um, the FCA published a good paper on um, vulnerability recently, and, and I think that was the subject of a, of a previous podcast, um, Andrew, that you've done. Um, when we talk to firms about this, you know, we encourage them to think about uh, vulnerability through the, the different regulatory concepts that are at play here. So what does that mean? Well, when they're working out which business services are, um, are important for them, they need to think about the nature of the client base. Um, and within that, they need to think about vulnerability characteristics. Um, when you get onto setting impact tolerances and you're thinking about harm and you're thinking about intolerable harm again you ought to think about the impact that disruption could have on the different cohorts of clients that you have um, for that service um, but also i think it's really important when it gets into scenario testing so once you've assumed that a disruption has happened and now the whole point is about preparing and practicing your response so it becomes second nature uh, in the event that it does happen is it appropriate there to um, to, to identify um, customers that may be vulnerable if, if you have the ability to do so um, and to then be able to perhaps expedite or treat differently those customer responses because of the, the situation that they find themselves in. So I think it is definitely 
a theme that um, that carries through the resilience paper. I'd say that I think given the recency of the FCA's um, vulnerability paper, this is still very much live in firms at the moment. So I don't think there's a well-developed view on it. It, but it's absolutely the right questions for firms to be asking, which is, you know, as, as we prepare for, we start to practice how we respond to disruption, what should that look like when we start to think about um, different types of customers and in particular vulnerable customers? Thanks, Adam. And I'm biased, but you're right. We did do an excellent podcast on vulnerability very recently, which uh, I'm sure some of our listeners will have, will have tuned into previously, but is available for those that didn't hear it. So, I mean, thank you both. I mean, the issues we've talked about today are clearly a culmination of a good few years worth of regulatory work. Uh, and I kind of get the sense that to an extent, it's over to firms really to implement and tackle these particular challenges now themselves. But I'd just like to end by asking you, what does the future look like for operational resilience? Uh, and what is the ultimate impact of the policy going to be on firms and on the broader financial services market? Um, Kalechi, let's start with you. Uh, I'll, I'll just still a quote from one of my clients who says this is how you should be running your business right the aim, the aim of your daily operations should be consistent continuous stable operations where you minimize impacts to customers um, and the market so while the requirements for resilience may seem onerous for firms at first we need to remember why we're doing this we're doing this to minimize harm to customers we're doing this to facilitate stability and integrity of the market so the objectives for resilience should absolutely be aligned with the objectives for running the firm. And I think that firms that embrace this and do this properly would effectively benefit because it could be a source of competitive advantage. It means that you can you have smooth, seamless services. It means that you have fewer disruptions, which effectively will cost less in the long run for you as a firm. It means that you can attract and retain customers and everything else. So for me, I think the, the lasting impact of this would hopefully be a change in or a shift in culture um, across the sector where there's a bit more ownership and, and, and awareness of the importance of, of resilience, which can only can only be a good thing. And, and ultimately, it should end up being the way we just do business, which is focus on treating customers right by maintaining seamless, smooth and resilient services. Thank you. And Adam, what are your thoughts? I think I'll compliment um, Kalichi's view where he's focused on the commercial side and that's absolutely right. You know, there's, there are commercial drivers here, even if it's the regulators who have perhaps encouraged firms to move in a certain direction. But maybe if I just take that regulatory lens then in compliment. There's a quote from a recent meeting I attended where someone said this was not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. Kalechi described earlier the time frame that um, the operational resilience policies are working to, you know, to the end of March 2025. But that's not everything. At the moment, what firms need to do is, is very clear. They have a, an implementation period um, and they will be driving a lot of activity over this next 12 months and then the, the, the three years after that. But this is about how firms do business from here on in. This is not a short term fad. This is about recalibrating how to work. So from a supervisory perspective, you know, I would expect uh, in the next year or so, you know, firms, the, the supervisors will be looking at what firms are doing individually. I think as time goes on, you'll start to see them uh, compare and contrast perspectives that are coming from uh, similar firms. 
Um, and, and over time, you'll see them start to build up this, this wider sort of sector-wide and hopefully industry-wide view. You start to see the, the systemic risks at play here. Uh, and you start to look for commonalities and I guess in particular outliers. And it's there where I think we'll start to see um, you know, changes and, and driving the real benefits where uh, we're challenging or the supervisors are challenging firm status quo and thinking about how to uh, to address things for the future. So, you know, the, the, they were called the final policies, um, you know, policy statements, supervisory statements, but it's absolutely not the end. Uh, this is really the, the start of the next chapter for firms. Thank you both. And from the end of the beginning to the end of our podcast, that was a, another really great discussion. It's been fascinating to hear about how firms are approaching this key regulatory topic. Um, and It has been a long time in the making. To our listeners, I hope you've also found this episode really helpful. Please do subscribe to future episodes and rate and review this series as it really helps other people to find us. And I'll be back next month with our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.